Yeah, it's a bear market, but people are still getting hired and companies are still raising capital. You wanna know how? Don't worry, we've got you covered. Borderless Blockchain Alliance has brought together some of the most respected blockchain insiders to share the latest developments on the state of the blockchain ecosystem. So if you're looking to stay updated or learn more about blockchain tech, investments, hiring, and intellectual property, then you're listening to the right podcast. By the way, I'm your host, Jay Harris. You can find me anywhere on social media as Podmaster Jay. All right, let's jump right into the conversation with our blockchain insider. I introduce myself as Ron Cade. I am the principal at International Capital Ventures. Nice, Ron. It's amazing having you here on the show. I'm glad we we're able to, to get you on and, and get into this conversation. So we're chatting about intellectual property today, but before we get too deep into that, I know you've got a long history with Web3 and blockchain. Can you give us a bit of a brief summary into how you got started in in this industry? Yeah. um, So, I mean, I've always been, I think, a technologist, a futurist, and an entrepreneur. Uh, so when I came out of law school, I, well, so I'm obviously an attorney. I went to law school. Um, but instead of going and practicing as an attorney, what I did was a started a company called Urban Delivery. So Urban Delivery was a company very similar to Uber Eats or Postmates, uh, before Uber Eats, but, uh, around the same time as Postmates. So it was a peer to peer delivery app. It was known as the anything delivery app. You could download it. You could request the courier to go pick up basically anything you wanted, um, and they would bring it to you and pay them. So probably about a year into running Urban Delivery, we got a cease and desist letter from a company called Ayers Mobile. And they had developed a number of patents in the ride-sharing space, the peer-to-peer ride-sharing space. Um, and you know they just developed significant IP. Um, it kind of underlaid pretty much anything that we were doing, but also what Postmates was doing, what Uber was doing, you know, their IP portfolio kind of covered a lot of that. So obviously we would have to go and recruit drivers for uh, our platform. And one of the primary places we did this at, uh, at that point, probably 2014, was the taxi cab driver association meetings. So we go to a meeting and... Um, you know, to recruit drivers, first Postmates gets up, kind of gives their spiel. Uh, we get up, we give our spiel. And then a guy named Michael Hall gets up and he basically says, uh, look, don't work with any of these people. They are illegally operating on top of my IP. I've got a patent. He picked the patent up and kind of waved it in front of everybody and said, uh, you know, I have the power to shut them down. So go into business with them at your own risk. But, you know, Basically, you know, they're, they're not going to be here for me. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I was fresh out of law school. I mean, you know, this guy, he didn't look particularly threatening. You know, he probably had sandals on, shorts. Um, but as it turned out, he was very serious. He, you know, he had you know, several key patents. And, um, you know, one of our advisors was the CTO at a company called Taxi Magic. It was one of the first big ride sharing apps. And he kind of filled us in. This guy had a number of patents that had 
gone from provisional, uh, patent pending status to non-provisional, so real. And essentially, he'd set up licensing agreements with all of the big companies that were involved in ride sharing or peer-to-peer delivery of any sort. And this guy was generating about $110 million per month, every single month, from Uber, from Postmates, from Lyft, all the companies. They Basically, they were sitting on top of his IP and, you know, they essentially just had to license it from them. So basically, every time you get into an Uber, or at that time, every time you get into an Uber, yes, very small percentage of your ride would go to Michael Hall. So this kind of clued me into like a pretty good business strategy um, in the sense that, you know, I'd sit back and I'd look at, you know, Uber, Uber, you know, continued to grow, grow, went public. But, you know, they consistently lose money. They, in fact, many analysts say Uber will never make money and never be a revenue generating business. Um, but Michael Hall is a walking, talking unicorn. He has two or three employees and he just develops great IP and commercializes. Um, so what I did was I, uh, you know, as I said, I'm an attorney. A lot of my friends are attorneys and a lot of my friends were working at, you know, really high level law firms, really tip top law firms who were doing IP strategy for, you know, your metas or your apples, your IBMs. And, you know, we essentially got together and figured out, okay, how can we spin off IP strategy into a standalone business? Um, and so, you know, what we did was, um, develop a model that was, uh, being utilized by like a lot of major companies, um, to develop IP for like the purpose of commercialization. So to explain that, I got to take you a little bit back. Um, most of the time when, you know, uh, somebody develops a patent, it's typically coming from an inventor. And they're developing it to protect their invention. So, you know, they, they build a better mousetrap. They don't want somebody to steal their better mousetrap, so they'll build a patent around it. And usually that patent is not worth the amount they put into it. Because if somebody wanted to build a better mousetrap, the way that our patent system is set up is they, somebody could just build something really similar. It's not covered by their patent. Boom, their patent is now worthless. The way that really large companies like your Samsungs, your IBMs, your Meta, Apple are developing IP is um, is a lot more strategic. Um, so what they're doing is developing large patent portfolios with an agenda, with a commercialization strategy. They're not. They're never just. You know, Apple doesn't just create the iPhone and say we don't want Samsung to create the iPhone, so we'll patent it. What they're doing is saying, look, you know, we have developed this IP. Uh, we invite Samsung to develop very similar IP to us because then they become our customer. They essentially have to pay us to like continue to produce that IP. So we developed the model um, of either developing our own internal IP, but also um, on the other end, we partner with companies who are developing on the bleeding edge of technology. They're operating their business, but they're not necessarily operating an IP strategy or they're not developing IP for the purpose of commercialization. So, you know, I guess some people like may kind of scoff at this, but the the venture capital model, it doesn't really work for everyone. It doesn't work for a lot of people. Um, you know, many VCs end up either not making a lot of revenue or actually losing a lot of revenue if their portfolio companies don't move forward to do well. So to, to us, that model was never really attractive, but 
in a lot of cases, you know, a company's IP is the most valuable part of their company. You know, you think about companies like IBM. IBM is uh, the largest licensing company in the world. I mean, yeah, IBM does produce products. IBM does have services, but uh, I mean, a, a substantial portion of their revenue comes from licensing IP. They have they have so much IP, they generate a ton of revenue licensing. So what we'll do is we'll partner with a company who's operating on the kind of bleeding edge of technology, and we will essentially um, fund the development of their IP portfolio. And what we'll do is, you know, we don't take an interest in their core IP or the IP that relates directly to their business, but the peripheral IP that we're building out for the purpose of kind of being a commercialized asset and generating revenue through licensing, we'll take a strong equity position in that. And it's kind of a win-win for all parties involved because, you know, if you're the operating company, you now have a performing asset you didn't have before um, that, you know, is useful in terms of your valuation as you move towards further rounds of venture capital or perhaps spinning out into private equity or even going public. Um, for us, you know, that IP is just a standalone business in and of itself. Uh, it's developed strategically, so it's not, a, it's not really a shot in the dark. Uh, we use a tremendous amount of patent intelligence to kind of guide our IP development. Uh, and for the VCs that are investing in these companies, it's also a win for them because, you know, now their companies, the portfolio companies just have a performing asset. Uh, if the business doesn't work out, they at least have a hard asset that they can uh, recoup some of their losses with or potentially, um, you know, those, those assets are in some cases uh, what's able to move the company forward. So it's kind of, from our perspective, it's a win-win for everybody. Gotcha. And so the, the connection with blockchain and Web3 is that the, these are the, the markets that you're targeting more, more specifically? Yeah, so if you think about, we think about IP a lot like real estate, right? Okay. So if you think about like the development of IP on your more traditional devices, like let's say an iPhone. Well, they say there's no new idea under the sun. You know, there's no real open landscape for basically anything that you could do on an iPhone. It's already been done. It's already been protected. It's either might be part of the public domain. So the bottom line is there's not really tremendous opportunity to develop, to basically go and buy a bunch of great prime real estate in the iPhone 2 space because it's been here for a long time. You know, the, the prime real estate was purchased a long time ago. When you're looking at the Web3 space, it's still such a new space that, I mean, right now, the only thing that we know about Web3, the only thing that we can see about Web3 is on the software side. Most of the Web3 hardware, if Web3 is ever gonna become what we think it will and gonna take over the world and it's going to change the lives of everyone, there is a tremendous amount of new technology that has to proliferate on the hardware side. Because, you know, how are these NFTs or how are these soul bond tokens going to communicate with anything in the real world? There's got to be hardware to accommodate them. Uh, and then even their use cases, you know, how are they really going to be used? Now, you know, we talk about the metaverse all the time. Um, you know, all, we're building out metaverses. We've got metaverse assets. Look, when was the last time you were in the metaverse or any of us was in the metaverse? Probably pretty rarely because the metaverse is headsets. I mean, really, the only headsets that are commercially available now are going to be that that people have got their hands on are going to be like your Oculus. But even people that have Oculus, you know, 
I, anytime I go to these conferences, I'm at these conferences all the time, and you've got people building metaverse games and uh, play to earn games, Web3 games. And the first thing I ask them is, look, when was the last time you put on your Oculus? And the response I'll get is, oh, I got one of those about a year or so ago, but I never use it. And I say, look, if you're building metaverse games, if you're doing anything in the metaverse, you should wear your Oculus 15, 20 minutes a day, just 15, 20 minutes a day, because look, that's a preview of the technology that's coming. You know, Apple was releasing a standalone headset, I believe, um, 4Q 2023. Don't quote me on that. Meta's following up. Uh, Meta's already got a pair of a collaboration with Ray-Bans. That's the direction of the technology. And I mean, from a technology perspective, it's already feasible for us to have um, glasses, regular old glasses that, you know, they would just look like your standard glass you'd wear to the store that have um, metaverse capability built right into them. Uh, I mean, they're not commercially available. You can't go to the store and buy them. But, you know, it's not the technology's here right now. In five years, the likelihood of you carrying this cell phone around is very low. Um, so we have to think, okay, well, if, if all this AR, all this VR, mixed reality is not going to happen on the cell phone, where is it going to happen? And that's where we find the real estate to be a bit. Um, so Web3, they just had the innovation isn't, hasn't happened yet. But what we do is we leverage uh, IP intelligence, patent intelligence. And we're looking at, okay, well, what is the hardware that's coming down the pipeline? Um, what is the innovation that's coming down the pipeline? Okay, cool. We want to go build in that space just because there's just so much more available. Hmm. I'm following you. Wow. This is a deep conversation that I don't think I've ever been privy to before. So thanks for sharing this. I'm hoping it's also new for the audience. You know what? Every time that I talk about our business model, anyone, the 90%, I think that the one time, I, there may be one time I've spoken to somebody and they said, oh, I know somebody that does something similar or I know a little bit about that model. Sometimes people will understand like companies that some operate with a similar business model. So you think about like Qualcomm. Qualcomm doesn't produce a lot, but they are a very big licensing company. So somebody might be familiar with that use case or IBM or Kodak. Um, but it's a very it's a very big market. The IP market, the IP marketplace is uh, it's pretty tremendous, but it's not very commonly known. It's that it's, there aren't a lot of practitioners in the space who are investing in an IP for the sake of investing in IP. You've got patent trolls, you know, you've got kind of parties like non-practicing entities that you know, they're kind of the ambulance chasers of intellectual property. Um, so they've, they've, they've existed for, um, you know, for a while, and they have been kind of a nuisance to the technology industry, but we don't view ourselves in that category. Um, so we, I think that our approach is uh, just a little bit different. And um, yeah, you know, I think that... Uh, you know, if you've got people listening to this podcast, you may, you you know, they may uh, get some good business inspiration and we, and we look forward to it uh, just to help develop this as an industry because it's just more opportunity for us to um, work with other companies who have a focus in our space uh, and hopefully just kind of build a field, and, you know, bring more awareness yeah. to this as an opportunity. For sure. And speaking of inspiration, can you share with us Maybe some of one, an example of one of your recent wins in, in this IP space? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, kind of going back to the NFT watch we we're talking about. So, probably about a year or so ago, 
um, when NFTs became, started to become super popular uh, as a status for, for purpose of showing status, for the full purpose of demonstrating uh, your position in the world. We identified this and we said, wow, this is a use case. This has got legs. This, is, this isn't going to go anywhere. Um, but where is this going? And so how is this going to, what is the trajectory of this? So we started looking at, okay, well, you know, right now people showcase their wealth in the digital world with their profile picture. Uh, how do they showcase their world wealth in the real world? And the first example we think could think of was immediately like, okay, your watch and the watch that you wear on your wrist. And, you know, we do a lot of like digital intelligence on social media beyond IP intelligence. And one thing that we noticed was like, you know, you've got a bunch of people that will go buy a board ape and then they'll just put a picture of the board ape on their Apple watch. Um, hmm. But, you know, anybody could do that. I could go take a picture of your board ape and put it on my Apple watch. So we started off on the very highest level with the use case of, look, we're, let's go protect a watch that you can, you know, you can put your NFT on. It'll be verified. Um, and if somebody sees you wearing it and they know it's your NFT, it's not just a screenshot of somebody else's. And that was the beginning of a pretty big padded family we began to develop around um, tokens and wearables. Um, and so, I mean, I guess kind of one of our most recent use cases is, you know, we developed that IP. Um, and then within the last couple of weeks, Tag Warriors come out with their watch that shows, showcase verified NFTs. So that watch sits squarely on top of like a patent family that we developed. Um, so it was, um, and th granted that patent family, it, it goes much deeper than just being able to showcase a verified NFT. There's a lot of functionality in there use cases of you know tokens in the real world um so that's just the most that's kind of scratching the surface but it was kind of a confirmation of our lens into the direction of the technology or the way that things are going you know the fact that you've got a company as large as tag where you're coming out and developing a product that matches ip that we developed you know um late 2020 early 2021 um, you know, that's something like that is, um, for me, very encouraging because it just confirms our lens, our grasp, our, um, you know, ability to gauge the direction of the technology and then develop IP that is kind of in sync with that. that yeah. Wow. That, that's super impressive, dude. I, I know that that happens that happened fairly recently, so in, in pretty short order. Oh, yeah. It was, well, so the Tag Warrior uh, watch was released within the last probably month or so. Mm -hmm. And to yeah. us, that's just the beginning. I mean, you know, we didn't just start jumping and doing cartwheels about that because that's really the scratch of the iceberg. I mean, you know, one of our key focuses is looking at, look, we believe Web3 is the, the next big thing, but a lot has to happen for that to be the next big thing for that to really happen. So, you know, we do have like, um, we have tools and we have resources that we're able to get an idea. So for example, we've got patent intelligence. We're able to see what the benchmark filers are filing. And, you know, those are essentially the parties that will bring the hardware to the market. So for example, you know, if we're looking at metaverse and we got to look at augmented reality. Uh, we got to look at mixed reality. We've got to look at virtual reality. So we know, who's filing in that space. And we know what they're filing. 
But the work on our end really becomes, okay, well, what are the use cases of that? What are people likely to do with, you know, these devices that will come out? How will they be used? And we've got, you know, a tremendous um, number of resources in the Web3 community because you have people that are building for these environments, but they may not necessarily know that they're building for them yet. Um, so it's just getting, getting together the right groups of people and just putting together the likely use cases of this technology that's going to proliferate. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's still the future. The, direct, the direction of technology could completely change. But anything, anytime, um, you know, new hardware comes out that kind of like confirms our IP, that's always very encouraging because to me, it just shows that we do have our finger on the pulse of the industry and we're able to kind of properly gauge the direction, which essentially is uh, our business model. So, you know, it confirms either we're, you know, we're doing the right thing or you know, we might need to go uh, go stand on the street with a sign that says, you know, we'll work for Bitcoin. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. That's funny. Well, let, let's take a step back and maybe bring some some wider context to to this whole thing i'm wondering like so you've got a fantastic use case for yourself but are you seeing anything similar in sort of the wider market you mentioned that not a lot of other people are thinking strategically about this has it changed recently is there are there more people getting in and it's just not a high number yet yeah yeah absolutely um so that i i think that a lot of uh investors are starting to uh, become more aware of um, licensing backed assets because we're in a we're in a cash crunch, right? Like the economy is, you know, contracting. Um, I think that a lot of investors are starting to look to areas that are going to number one be counter cyclical. So, for example, you know, one of the big arguments for Bitcoin was that it was anti inflationary. It was your hedge against inflation. But we've seen that hasn't been that hasn't necessarily been true. Um, Bitcoin has performed kind of on par with the, the wider economy. Um, so, you know, the good thing about IP and, and this is I think that's something that a lot of companies are beginning to realize, uh, particularly in private equity, particularly in we're not really seeing it so much in the VC space. But we are seeing it like a lot more in a private equity space where companies are looking for. Um, you know, essentially asset-backed investments, revenue-backed investments. IP is a cash-flowing business uh, because, you know, you have, if you have a valuable patent portfolio, then you have licensing fees attached to that. And, you know, when parties are infringing upon your IP, then they have to license it from you. Uh, it's not discretionary. A company can't just say, you know, the economy is contracting and we want to stop licensing your IP from you. Be legally, they're bound to. Um, through agreement or through litigation, they're, you know, they're bound to, um, you know, operating kind of within the context of the law. And we're seeing a lot of new infrastructure uh, arising around this field. So, for example, in the past, one of the big incumbent, uh, one of the big um, kind of challenges to being like an IP licensing company is that a company, a company could infringe upon your IP and basically say, hey, you got to take me to court. It's going to be expensive for you to take me to court. Um, you know, you don't have the power to do it. You don't have the wherewithal to do it. So we're going to infringe and, you know, we can settle this in court. Uh, and we've got a bigger legal budget for you. Well, what we're seeing is like there are firms popping up for the purpose of IP litigation at this point. Hmm. So there's mature. I think, I think a lot of investors have 
realize the value in the field and infrastructure has begun to uh, kind of proliferate. At the same time, it's still a very high level and very niche marketplace. Um, you know, the companies that you're seeing become involved in it are going to be larger corporates, larger conglomerates, large private equity, hedge fund type businesses, and it's still fairly niche. Um, but the benefits are, the benefit to this type of business, I don't think it's going to be niche for long. As, as people become aware of it, as operators become aware of it, um, I think it'll just become more common. I would like to see an environment where, you know, companies are taking advantage of their IP um, as a commercial asset in their business, because, you know, you're essentially developing a business, operating a business, running and managing a business. Look, why not develop your IP portfolio and have, you know, your have your uh, have another asset that's generating revenue for your business only creates value for you. And the thing that I really like to say is like this, and a lot of people don't like it when I say this, but I say it anyway. Most businesses don't succeed. Most businesses fail. It's really difficult to operate a business, you know, to develop a product, bring it to market, um, and you know, essentially win the competition of business. Look, why not get the insurance of developing an IP portfolio around, you know, your business activities? That way, look, your competitors become your customers. You only win when your competition does well because, um, you know, they have, they have the license from you. And, you know, if you don't win the business race, well, okay, that's okay. It, it, it's pretty common. Everybody doesn't win. But guess what? You do win because whoever did win the business race is your customer. They still have to pay you. You still have the IP. So, um, I mean, I think that that's a more sustainable model for, you know, companies who are developing products. Because if things don't fail, if things don't work out, I mean, look, companies get bought and sold for their IP portfolios. Um you know, if you're building and protecting your IP, it's I think it's a I think it's kind of a good thing for everyone because licensing exists, whether licensing exists, whether you're involved with it or not. You know, when you get big enough when your business progresses far enough, you know, there's a whole stack of licensing um, agreements that you're going to have to set up and establish to move forward. Um, so from my perspective. Look, the companies that are involved in that are either large corporates or um, non-practicing entities. Uh, but as an operator, I think that it's wise to you know put yourself to insert yourself in that business as well. Okay, so let's say I'm a founder. I'm a Web three founder. I'm I'm listening to this conversation right now. You've piqued my attention. What what's what are some of the actionable steps that I can take to try to take advantage? Uh, and secure my, my IP. Right. So I think that what you want to do, you want to look at developing your IP. Um, you want to look at it from a commercialization perspective. I think that the not only Web3 founders, but founders and inventors in general, the whole idea of developing patents to protect your invention or to, to, to directly protect what it is you're building, let's get out of that mindset that we should no longer do that. Because those patents often aren't worth the paper they're printed on. They're not going to do anything for you. If anything, they're going to hurt you. Um, so I think that the first step that you can go about is. Um, so first things first, you don't necessarily need a patent to protect your idea. What you can do is file a provisional patent. You go file a provisional patent. Um, and I think that you want to build the biggest wall of provisional IP that you can. So. File a number of provisional patents. So provisional patents 
They cost a couple hundred bucks to file. They're not that specific, but they basically will hold your place in line for like one year. And you can use those provisional patents to number one, you know, you can look for outside use cases beyond your direct business model. Um, just start filing provisionals in those spaces. And then you can kind of shop those around and you can, you know, kind of gauge the, you can go and see if they have value to your business or if they are even capable of being commercialized um, from a licensing perspective. And I would say that that's really a good first step. I mean, anytime you're inventing, like, look, you start building your product today, it's going to take you years for your product to be complete. You know, I think the first thing you can start doing, start by doing is like uh, going and filing provisional IP. So to any founder, that's that's probably going to be the first thing that I'm going to say to you. Um, second, so let's start thinking about how your technology, okay, we know how it applies to your model, but how can it apply to models around yours? I mean, how can you take that IP and turn it into something that is going to generate revenue for you rather than just some random thing that you have sitting around doesn't really do anything. So, yeah, we've got we're in business A. We've got direct uh, competitors in business A. Cool. Apples, apples. But now let's start looking at like use cases outside of business A that still kind of could sit on top of our IP. And let's start creating filings that start to encompass those things, because those businesses are going to come around. They're going to develop. You know, industries are going to develop that you don't even know about. But if you've got great IP, then great, you got, you're going to generate licensing revenue if you've thought, been forward thinking enough to extrapolate beyond the right now or the, beyond the most obvious and immediate use cases. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think that founders should really be thinking as I, of, of IP as a commercial asset that can continue to attribute the, to the bottom, their, bottom line of their businesses as they move forward. Gotcha. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, and wow. Let me say, man, you've been sharing just some amazing nuggets of information and wisdom here. Um, I'm hoping that the the listeners have been able to to pick up on some of this, and they're going to be able to take action with a lot of w- what you're saying. In fact, I I know that this has been super impactful to me personally. So I just want to say thank you. But be, before we we start wrapping up this conversation, there's one thing that I've been asking all of our guests, and that's, I want you to sort of think in, into the future. So you and I were sitting here in 2022 right now. If we came back in 2027, five years from now, and we're, we were thinking about what things were like back in 2022, what do you think would have changed with regards to IP in relation to Web3 and the blockchain? What's going to be different? Um. Okay, so... We primarily focus on the hard IP side. We're talking about patents. Um, but an area that I think about that has just to common people is going to be really more so on the soft IP side. And this is where I told you, like, I think if we talked about this, we may have discussed this before the podcast, maybe very early in the podcast. But what I think the key thing uh, that Web3 is going to offer to the world is basically the ability to commercialize everything. Mm-hmm. And fractionalize everything. Now, you know, you know, I imagine an environment where I'm looking at Netflix. All right. Those shows on Netflix, they have no value to me. They really have no value to anyone but Netflix and the people that create it. Um, so but what if what if you know you're gonna go create this great show for Netflix, but you're able to sell the characters on that show as NFTs? 
And you know, somebody owns those NFTs, you know, an investor can own the NFT. I can own, you know, a character in a Disney movie. And the same way that, you know, as an actor, you're going to collect a royalty every time that your TV show is played as an actor. What if I could own a character in that Disney movie? That character is essentially an actor in that movie and it's able to earn a royalty or be a commercialized asset. Another use case I think of is, you know, the fractionalization of like a TV show. So what if you're able to own like a number of seconds on Law and Order, episode 556? And the same way that, you know, that show generates revenue every time it's played, it's fractionalized in all of its moments. And that revenue is dispersed against the owners of those moments. And you own, you know, 10 seconds of that TV show. And every time that 10 seconds goes by, then you collect, you know, that portion of the royalty for that show. Well, that's great for you as an investor if you think that that show is going to be really successful. But who else is that great for? It's great for the people that want to produce shows. Because, you know, it's a fundraising tool that, you know, just like anything else. Um, So I think that from that perspective, um, just the commercialization of soft IP, trademarks, copyrights, um, essentially it's going to become a lot more decentralized. Uh, and, you know, we'll see people, uh, we'll see IP just being used in ways that just that it, it's impossible right now. Uh, the next Mission Impossible movie was going to come out in a couple months. You can't invest in that movie. You can't do anything with that movie. You can't have anything. You can't do anything but go and watch that movie. Um, but I think that'll change. Like, you know, I think that you may be able to say, wow, you know, I'm really, uh, I really love the last Mission Impossibles. I think this movie is going to perform particularly well. Uh, you know, I'd like to own a character in that movie. Or I'd like to you know, own a few minutes of that movie. Um, great. Well, the people that are developing uh, the new Mission Impossible, they say, well, I'd like $300 million to develop this movie. And, uh, you know, so boom, we're going to we're going to fractionalize these different aspects. We're going to push them out to the market. And, you know, I think it just opens that up to the common person. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think that we're just going to see way more distributed ownership of the the digital and real life assets that we interact with in in a real world. So to me, that's that. To me, that's when I think of Web three. That's what I think of, and I think that that's what that's what'll change. Wow. Yeah. No. I'm I'm with you 100. percent That whole idea of factionalizing your content seems like a great way of raising capital to 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 create that content initially, and for creators, that could be a, a completely new stream of revenue where you're able to have the money up front to do what you love doing rather than having to sort of almost do it for free and then wait on, on the back end and hopefully you make that money back. So that, that could be a, a significant game changer. Wow. So we'll, you and I, we're going to get back together in five years. We're going to see if, that, if that's the way it plays out. I can't wait, out. man. I can't wait. No, I mean, the future is exciting. The future is either, depending on how you view the world, the future is terrifying or very exciting. Right? I personally, I lean towards exciting. So. Well, well, Ron, it's been amazing you having you here on the show, brother. Um, let I know there are people who are listening who might want to continue this conversation with you. Maybe they want to pick your brain and ask you some questions or just follow you online to see what else you're up to. What's the best place for people to connect with you online? Best place to connect with me is going to be LinkedIn. 
so I'm Ron Cade on LinkedIn. Uh, or, you know, I'm old school. I'm kind of Instagram guy. Um, so, you know, you can always find me on Instagram at Arcade, R-C-A-D-E dot E. Um, so, yeah, hop into my DMs. I'm always happy to chat. Um, or, you know, just catch me on LinkedIn. And um, if you have any ideas, you know, my inbox is always open. Awesome. And so to everyone who's listening, we've got links to Ron's social media accounts. So right in the description of this episode, so you can go ahead and click on those links. It'll take you right to, to Ron's social media accounts. Ron, appreciate having you here, buddy. But I wanted to just open this up to you one last time uh, just before we, we close this off and ask if you had any final words of, words of encouragement, words of wisdom, words of inspiration to share with the, the founders and the listeners in the audience before we end this up, we sign off. All I got to say is W-A-G-M-I, um, builders build, you know, keep it up. I mean, you know, we're building the brand new world, so... Uh, just be encouraged and, and keep going and uh, build cool stuff. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Blockchain Insiders Report, which is supported by a partnership with the Borderless Blockchain Alliance. If you still have questions or concerns after listening to this episode, don't worry, we've got you covered. Feel free to reach out to the guests directly or contact the Borderless Blockchain Alliance at blockei.io. That's B-L-O-C-K-E-I dot I-O. And we'll catch you next time.